one of the things I enjoy doing is watching my kids look at pictures of when they were young. We've got our computer right there in our family room, and, and they like to do it. In fact, it happened this week where they're just kind of looking at pictures when they were really young, and they're laughing, and they actually have like, like categories and stages and names for those, and I'm not going to actually give those to you, so I don't totally embarrass my kids. But they love doing that and watching, and you're like, oh, look how ridiculous you look, and stuff like that, and they're showing, and there they are. In fact, there's a couple pictures and stuff like that, just all fun at the call household. And they, they look at stages of when they're growing up. And you know, as parents, that's really what we want. We do want our kids to grow up. That's kind of what parents do. I mean, there's some hard stages to have to leave, but indeed, you really want your kids to grow up. You want them to learn how to feed themselves. You want them to learn how to pick up their toys. We're still working on that, right? I mean, you really, what happens if your kid never grew up? What if they never learned how to put away their clothes or, or to pick up their clothes or throw them in a dirty clothes basket? And some of you married someone that's still in process right there. Be encouraged. It might happen. I don't know. We're still working under our house. What if they never learned the importance of safety? Like when the ball goes rolling off the driveway, the basketball, you don't just go running down the street. You look first, and then you go get the ball. Or that the stove, yeah, it's red and it's orange. That's not because you're supposed to touch it. You're supposed to not touch it. You know, if your kids didn't grow up and learn these things, um, didn't learn how to read, didn't learn how to dress themselves, you know, it would be like, oh, something's not quite right. But I will tell you this, not everyone who grows old grows up. Not everyone who grows old grows up. You may certainly physically mature. That's, you can't really do a lot to hinder all that process. But that's no guarantee that you're mature. You know, you'll find that you'll find some kids, they're pretty young. But they got a lot of maturity. You're like, whoa, how did that happen? On the other hand, you've got some folks that are up there in age, but there's just some very evident immaturity in their decision-making process and the choices that they make, and you're like, wow, you know, you'd think that you wouldn't be making those kind of choices, but here we are again. Every parent wants their kid to mature, and I can assure you that's true of God. God is so committed to those who have placed their faith in Christ, and he brings them into his family that he makes maturity, maturity in his Christ, a Christ-centeredness about all of life, the major emphasis of walking with God. God is glorified when his people grow and develop and develop Christ-centered lives. And there's a maturity that's evident. There's like salt and light that are just being emanated from these people's lives. So much so that the very first book in the New Testament that was ever written, the book of James, was written to address this very issue. It's all about maturity. Maturity matters. And I, I can tell you just personally, me, I want to grow and develop and mature. Made some progress, got a lot of room for growth. But I am a continuous growth mindset kind of guy. I want to keep taking steps forward. In fact, I would say that every Christian, if you really know Christ, there is a desire from the Holy Spirit himself to grow and to mature and to experience the fullness of Christ in every aspect of life. And that's why the book of James is so critically important. God handpicked a guy to guide us in the process. And James is one of the great Christ-centered leaders of the early church. Now let me uh, give you some of the background, the backstory, the man behind the message. Because sometimes we come to a book like James, and we're like, just, oh, there it is, James 1, James, and you just kind of read it. 
But you really have to know who this person is, and it takes on a whole new flavor for the book. Now, uh, if you've read the New Testament, you know that there are three major uh, people that are, have the name James. Probably the most popular is James, the brother of John. One of Jesus' top three in the inner circle with Jesus. In fact, James and John were given the name Sons of Thunder by Jesus himself, okay? So obviously wherever they went, that's where the party was. They could create a promotion in no time. They were the sons of thunder, right? John and James. And then there is um, there was another one of the apostles, one of the original twelve, that was also called James. James, the son of Alphaeus. Remember that? Tradition holds, and in fact, he's still referred to as James the Less. I mean, can you imagine, like, hey, there, this is James, one of the sons of thunder, and oh, by the way, here's James the Less. You know, it's like, oh, I'm James the Less. Nice to meet you, right? And it had nothing to do with his intellect or his spiritual maturity. It was likely that he was smaller in stature and size, and so he just had to roll with James the Less. I'm sure it was painful, but it helped probably humility. But the third guy, the third James, the James that uh, wrote this letter, is the half-brother of Jesus. He is the natural-born son of Joseph and Mary. And in all the times that he is listed, when the brothers of Jesus are listed, he is always listed First, And so it was likely, and it's assumed, that he was the next in line. So there was Jesus, supernatural birth, miraculous conception, and then there was this natural birth of, through Joseph and Mary, was James. And for 20, 30 years, James and the other brothers as they came along, they grew up with Jesus. Houses weren't really big, not a lot of extra rooms, everybody kind of slept together. These guys likely slept in the same bed. They went to synagogue on the Sabbath, the same synagogue. They played in the same streets and in the same field. They worked together in the workshop with Joseph, their dad, while he was alive. And they probably continued to work so after he passed away. They made, this, made the same treks to Jerusalem, and they grew up tightly. Certainly, Joseph and Mary, at key points, must have tried to instruct their natural-born children of the supernatural child, Jesus. The miraculous events and what took place and the angels and what they proclaimed and just that this one is the promised one. And you would think that having grown up with Jesus and seeing perfection, and I'm sure that was tough at times, right? And hearing from their parents, from Jesus' adopted father, Joseph, and from Mary, that they would have understood that this one was the Messiah. But actually, Jesus' siblings, specifically his brothers, rejected that. There was just no way. I don't know the sibling rivalry or what, but they were not about to say, like, you mean to tell me that our older brother here, Jesus, is the promised Messiah of the Old Testament? And it's interesting, the Gospels, one of the ways it shows us that these are authentic words from God is they never hide any of these problem issues. Like, for instance... In Mark chapter 3, verse 21, it says that Jesus literally translated kinsmen, his relatives, likely his brothers, tried to restrain Jesus because they said, quote, he's out of his mind, he's, he's lost his senses. Or there was another situation where in John chapter 7, Jesus is up north, he is obviously with his family, 
he doesn't, he's not at this time planning to go to Jerusalem uh, to make the uh, trek to the Feast of Booths, and his brothers just all out mock him. They actually t- say, listen, you know, for no one who does, no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. You're running around like an itinerant rabbi. You're doing these things. Some call them miracles. You're teaching. Hey, if you're going to go public, Jesus, you ought to go where the people are. They're down there in Jerusalem right now, and they mock him. And it says in John 7, verse 5, the very next verse, For even his brothers did not believe in him. That would include James. And yet, if you've read the book of Acts, this same James has a prominent role. In fact, he is the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Clement of Alexander wrote that the apostles John and Peter were the ones who selected James, the the half-brother of Jesus, to be the leader of the early church in Jerusalem. And he's clearly the leader. If you notice in Acts chapter 15, there is this major breach that's taking between Jewish believers and Gentile believers. So much for him, so that it could cause this great schism in the church. And so the guy that is the moderator, spokesman, and announcer of the final decision, any wild guess who that might be? It was James, the half-brother of Jesus. And he is he's a man that seems to be prominent. He shows up like when they brought the when Paul on the third missionary journey brings this offering from all the believers in the Roman Empire to the believers in Jerusalem. Many of these came from Gentile churches, giving money to help the poor believers in Jerusalem. When Paul comes with Barnabas, what they what they're talking about is they're talking to James and the elders. In fact, Galatians chapter two refers to James as one of the pillars of the church. What in the world changed? In James, how in the world did he go from total skeptic to sold out, the leader of the Church of Jerusalem? I've got one word for you. Resurrection. It was the resurrection of Christ that changed everything for him. By the way, if you were here and you're just kind of investigating Christianity, I just want you to know, we're all people that are just sinners by nature. Pretty evident. we got a track record. And we have come to know and to believe that this Jesus, who lived this perfect life, died as the sacrifice for sins. That's why he goes to the cross, to pay the just penalty for sin, and he rises again on the third day. And we're just trusting in him. The resurrection changed it all from James. Remember, there's a, like it talks about in 1 Corinthians 15? I know this is familiar, but you may have missed this. Let me just read it to you. We'll put it up here. First Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 3, it says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, Peter, then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Asleep is a euphemism for death, and there was a time that the resurrected Jesus, nail holes and all, appeared to the apostles, but he also appears to more than 500 people at one time. Okay, that would be rather convincing. These people have seen the resurrected Christ. It changed them. How could it not? But you might have missed the next verse. John, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 7. Then he appeared to James. 
and they know all the apostles. Can you imagine Jesus appearing to his half-brother James, the very one who tried to restrain him, the very one who said he lost his senses, the same half-brother who's like he's out of his mind and mocked him. Jesus appearing to James. How powerful of a reunion that must have been. And you see that James is totally changed after this encounter with Jesus. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus says, I want you to hang out and hang back, and I want you to pray because what I promised you, the power of the Holy Spirit is about to come. So you just be gathered in prayer. In Acts chapter 1, you find verses 12 through 14, the apostles and all these different believers are gathering, as well as Mary and Jesus' brothers, which would include James. And so we find, when you come to James chapter 1, verse 1, that opening name takes on a whole new meaning when you got the backstory, doesn't it? James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. And James took on the disciple-making mission of Jesus. To go throughout the world, to make disciples of all the nations, to proclaim the gospel, and to teach them to observe all that Jesus commanded. That is what God wants us to do. He wants us to share Christ in very real ways, who he is, and he wants us to see people brought to the fullness of maturity in Christ. That every aspect of your life has a Christ-centeredness about it. That you grow and mature. And that's exactly what James did. He did so, and that was his position in the early church. He was known to be this man who lived out the message that he was preaching. It's really interesting, when you come to the book of James... I want to give you a little warning. He is going to step on some toes. He is not PC. He's not interested in like, oh, I'm just going to smooth this over and uh, put it in some nice kind of platitude. No, like he's ultra direct. He's going to go straight at the matter. Some of you are going to like, whoa, wow. Man, hit me right in the, between the eyes of the two by four, right there. That's how he's going to function. It's unvarnished truth. I'll tell you, it's also from a man who deeply loves. Eleven times in this letter, he refers to my brethren, okay, my family members in Christ. Three times he calls them my beloved brethren, my dearly loved family members in Christ. And James takes the whole life approach. Sometimes we kind of compartmentalize things, like, well, i got my spiritual life, I'll do that on Sunday. I'm going to kind of do whatever I want in my job or at school or in my entertainment. James takes the whole life approach. Everything about you. Head, heart, hands. Head, what you know, focuses on your knowledge, your wisdom, your understanding, your comprehension. He doesn't want people remaining ignorant. He wants you to know and understand the truth. He also addresses heart, what you were like. Focuses on character, your convictions, your beliefs, your attitudes, your values. So what you know gets translated to what you believe. What's true about God, life, health, sin. Money, your mouth, faith. What's true becomes your convictions. Because we live out our convictions, and that's why he focuses on hands. What you do. Your skills that you're developing. Your conduct. Your behavior. And he probably wrote this book about A.D. 44 through 49. And what I want to do is I want to challenge you to read it. Read it regularly. I met with one guy this week. He says, man, I know we're doing James. We started this summer. I'm reading James, a chapter a day during the work week. And it's got five chapters. That's really doable. Some of you could read it in one setting. It's it's a very doable book. I know one guy that actually memorized it. 
But I am challenging you to be in this book. The sermons will be far more alive if you're actually engaging in the text. If you don't have anything that you're done studying the Bible, let me introduce you to one book that could change your life forever. And so we have James, the half-brother of Jesus, and he introduces himself not as the leader of the church of Jerusalem. Remember that. He obviously is so well-known, he just says, I'm just going to put my name down, James. And then notice how he identifies himself. I'm not the leader of the church of Jerusalem, though he is. He describes himself as a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to know something. How you see yourself determines how you live your life. How you see yourself determines how you live your life. Let me ask you. How many of you run around with pride with the title, Hey, I am a servant. Okay, well how about slave, right? No one? Really interesting. Because that's how James identifies himself. Now I know those are kind of some loaded terms. They got a lot of negativity for some reasons in our country. But to be a servant of God or a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, man, there is no more noble way to approach life. In fact, there is something really freeing when you just see yourself as a servant of God. This was actually an esteemed title. Israel, National Israel, was in like the book of Isaiah, known as the servant of Yahweh. Let me give you some heavy hitters from the Old Testament. Moses, David, Elijah. You know what they all have in common? They all identified as servants of God, servants of Yahweh. And so that's how James sees himself. I want you to know who I am. I'm a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is pretty amazing. This is who Jesus is. He's Lord. Speaking of sovereignty, he is the sovereign God. He is in control. He is Jesus. The name means Savior, and he is the Christ. It's the Greek term that refers to the anointed one. The promised one of the Old Testament, all of the Old Testament, is pointing to one who will be a deliverer, who is God himself, who will come and bear our sins in his body, who will actually provide propitiation, and who will rise again, and he will see his offspring, like it says in Isaiah 53. He is the Lord Jesus Christ, and James gets it. And friends, that's what makes us believers. When we see Jesus for who he is, Lord, God, Jesus, Savior, Christ, Messiah, when we trust in this one, friends, it changes everything, just like it did for James. And you're not, not going to find a better mentor than James. I mean, this guy, he's got the qualities to make a significant investment. You know I'm a, a big believer in, in mentoring and discipleship. And that's because I believe I'm the product of godly men starting back in college at the University of Oregon when a college student started to pour into my life and helping me take steps of growth. I feel like I'm a product of godly men who've invested in my life. James has the qualities of a great mentor. You know, first of all, you'll notice that he's humble, okay? You know, you want to find someone that can pour into your life that's not trying to grandstand, be the draw with attention to themselves. There's a humility in their life. They're not perfect. They're willing to confess and admit when they're wrong. But they've got a strength and humility, a dependence upon God that puts you in a position where you can actually have a concern for others. And you, you have a kind of a lowered sense of your own self-importance. 
That doesn't mean that you don't have a backbone, that you don't have conviction, you don't have strength. Actually, it shows that you do. Another reason that James is such a good guy for a mentor is that he's real. He's the real deal. His words rang true. He was known to live his message. Both his friends, people in the church, and his enemies referred to him as the righteous one, meaning he lived as he ought to live. And tradition tells us uh, that he uh, had a reputation of being known as camel knees. And that wasn't because he fell down a lot or couldn't tie his shoes. It's because he was a man of prayer. And you know, you don't have these little cushions there to kneel down on. You kneel on the rock and the dirt in your house. Had a tendency to develop some calluses. He was known as old camel knees. And that's the third reason why James is such a good mentor. We need him. Why God, I believe, selected him. He is what you call all in. He wasn't this complacent Christian. He wasn't a fair-weathered faith kind of individual. He was all in, no holding back. And I'll tell you, you need to be willing to suffer if you're going to really go and advance in what you believe. There is no ministry without misery. There is no proclamation without pain. For James, this isn't theory. James actually took to heart what Jesus said. You remember what Jesus said? Matthew 16, verse 24. Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, is there, is there anybody here like that? You know anybody want to come after Jesus? Okay, keep thinking about it, because this is what he said. He must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That means there are times you might be misunderstood. You may be maligned. People will hurt you. You might even get forsaken by some individuals. But I'll tell you one who will not leave you, and that is Jesus. He says, come, follow after me. You leave it at the cross, and let me fill your life. And that's what James did. And he's ministered in a very difficult time. There was, obviously, the temple was still in operation. Uh, if you were a believer, and you came from a Jewish background, like the Jews hated you and forsook you. On the other hand, you couldn't fit into the Gentile because you had a Jewish background. And Jesus had James minister to these people. Um, we don't have any record in the Bible how James died. But church tradition holds that he was martyred in A.D. 62. He was referred to, like I said, as the righteous one. And the Pharisees specifically hated him. And so one day they took him and took him to the very top of the temple. We don't know which one of the corners. And they literally threw him off long ways down. Many stories. He hits that ground, but somehow he's still alive. So they all pile down around him, and they start beating him with clubs and rocks. And church tradition holds that he uttered these words as he knelt down. I beseech thee, Lord God and Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. Sound familiar? Who said that? That's right, Jesus did. That's where he learned that. And so he writes, this one who lived his faith, this bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, he writes to the 12 tribes who were dispersed abroad. Uh, this would be written to Jewish Christians, and they were being dispersed. Uh, diaspora, and had the idea of like scattering, like seed. And it's possible it started with the Stephen's martyr. Remember the very first person ever died for their faith in Christ was a deacon in the church by the name of Stephen. He lied about, he, he was being confronted by the Jews especially the Jewish leadership, he walked through the entire Old Testament history. This guy knew his scriptures. 
And he showed how they all culminated and focused on Jesus. Well, that, they were probably fine until they got to the point where he was saying, you've got to believe in him. And you put him to death. Well, that made him mad, so what did they do? Well, they had a tendency, if they didn't quite like you, like what you're saying, they just kill you. And they did. Remember, they threw stones, and they kept stoning this man to death. Stephen, by the way, said the exact same thing that Jesus did when he was dying on the cross. And a guy by the name of Saul, who eventually became known as Paul, was scorching coats on that day. But likely, it was the persecution that came when Herod Agrippa I, in AD 44, comes into power. And he really put the heat on the Christians. What happened? Just like it's happening in our world today, when widespread persecution, and we're not talking calling a few names, we're talking people dying and getting beat up, getting run out of their businesses. When that kind of persecution happened, this church had to flee. It was scattered. They became the diaspora. And can you imagine what that was like? Can you imagine right now if all of a sudden you were forced to leave? You leave your jobs, your schools, your friends, everything. Don't be picking up all your clothes and your family belongings and your own playstations, whatever you've got. Don't worry about that. You have to leave. That's what happened to these people. They experienced extreme stress. They left their homes, their jobs, their properties. They went through all sorts of trials. It's no wonder that the very issue, that first issue that James addresses is considered all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Why? Because they were going through it. They were experiencing it. They were uprooted from their homes. They were trying to hold their families together. They were holding on by a thread of faith. They were brand new Christians. And they were experiencing tremendous pressure. And so God, so desiring that these children, these children of God, their new babes in Christ, grow and mature, God had James write this letter, this letter for life. It's kind of like our, our mission statement at Fellowship. To glorify God by living out the life we have in Christ. An acronym for loving God, investing in his word, investing in others, following his word, and engaging others. That's what life stands for. And that's what James is doing. It's a book written for life. And that's the book theme. It's got, I put it down to two words so I can remember it. If you ask me, hey Grant, what's the theme of the book of James? Give me about 10 seconds, go through the library of my mind, but I'm going to be able to come up with this. Ah, I remember. Maturity matters. Maturity matters. That's what this book is all about. And James is kind of like a good dentist. I mean, you know when you go to the dentist and you got like a serious toothache or you got some major problem, right? And you can't eat? When you go to the dentist and they kind of got you on there and strapped down in that chair, you want the dentist to address the problem, don't you? You don't want to have him telling you stories about his grandmother and, oh, one time she was at the county fair. And you, you're like, no, I mean, that's all important. It's not that you don't care about his grandmother's life, but you've got an issue. you got some problems, right? And so you want the dentist to address them. And so that's what... James does. You don't want the dentist to tell you some nice stories and say, oh, yeah, I see you got some problems. Tell you what, your time's up. Hey, come back next week. We'll talk some more. No, you don't want him saying like, oh, well, make sure you pay at the front desk and you get a little something out of the treasure chest. No, you want the dentist to address the problem, right? And that's what James does. Isn't that it? Cut through the fluff. He's going to get straight down to the issues. And so this book that we started this summer, it's got a very simple outline. Chapter 1 is the mindset of a maturing faith in Christ. And you, you recall, or if you want to listen to these messages, if you missed them, they're always on our website. Maturity comes through growing through trials. 
chapter 1, verses 2 through 12. Maturity comes from overcoming temptations, and maturing comes from living out the truth. This is the mindset for a maturing faith in Christ. And then really, most of the book deals with obstacles to a maturing faith in Christ. And it covers a wide variety of subjects, anything from your mouth to what you do with your money. And you need to know something about obstacles. If they're not addressed, they become like impediments to walking with joy and knowing God's peace and growing in spiritual maturity. But when you address these obstacles, what happens is you give a lot of credibility to your testimony. But here's the problem. A lot of folks think, like, ah, you know, obstacles, it's no big deal. I'm just going to go on cruise control with Jesus. I'm not going to worry about the obstacles. If you avoid addressing the obstacles to a maturing faith in Christ, you're going to be like stunting your development. It's going to be very evident. I was reading in uh, 1999, there was a, a, an event that took place for the first time in 47 years. There were these tuna, which are large fish, that were running about 30 miles, off, 30 miles off of Cape Cod. And not only were they running, but you could actually catch them. And rumor had it that Japanese buyers were paying about $50,000 uh, for a large bluefin tuna. Now, the Coast Guard, fully aware that this could be very problematic if you weren't equipped to handle this, put out all these warnings. But of course, you know, you got your boat, you know better than the Coast Guard, right? And so they went out and they thought they'd just go catch themselves some tuna and boy, you know, catch two or three of those and you could have a family vacation and a rental home to go with it, right? And so they, they ignored the Coast Guard's warnings and they went out. And the problem wasn't catching the tuna. The problem was getting them into the boat. So September 23rd, 1999, the Christie Ann, a 19-foot boat, guess what? One of the guys, I got one! Sure enough, he did. And he capsized that boat, doing battle with the tuna. That same day, there was a 27-foot boat, the Basic Instinct. They suffered the same fate. Another boat, a 28-footer named Official Business, was swamped, literally just pulled under the water when it hooked on to a 600-pound tuna. You see, the problem was these fishermen underestimated the size and the power of these fish. They thought, oh, I got it. No worries. I can handle it. And friends, that's the problem with a lot of Christians. They take lightly the obstacles that James is going to address. They're like, oh, so you're going to cover these obstacles? Well, you know, I'll try to make a church maybe once a month, and I'll catch a few of those. It's no big deal. I got it. No, you don't. If you don't address the obstacles that James is addressing, your life will show it. And so he goes into great attention to that. And then finally, he concludes this book, beginning in James chapter 5, verse 7, about the means of developing a maturing faith in Christ. He tells you exactly how to do it. And that's why James is writing. He's writing from the heart of experience. He's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. You see, how you see yourself determines how you live your life. And so that's what he's doing. He's writing a letter for life. I don't know if you saw this, but on, on Tuesday morning, if you get the Waco Tribune paper, you looked at the very front page, there was this story about this retired kindergarten teacher named Mrs. Colleen Fitzgerald. And if you looked at the paper, you're like, whoa, look at I recognize one of those kids. There's Connor Poppet, one of our one of our high school kids. He's right there. He's a senior. He's right there on the front page. And what, it was an amazing story. I mean, like, I needed to hear this. So here we have 
Shelley Conlon, she's right from the Waco trip, she writes about this Mrs. Colleen Fitzgerald, this retired kindergarten teacher. And what this teacher did is she's been writing letters to all of her former students. And she writes them every year, three times a year. She writes a letter. She writes a letter that they usually get right about August 15th, or on that day, right before they start school. She then writes another letter at Christmas and another one at graduation time. And she's been writing these letters. And uh, Connor's even quoted as saying, but what an impact this teacher's made. Someone that believed in me, starting at age five years old, and each year he gets these letters from his teacher. Now, in the article, Colleen Fitzgerald uh, says that she doesn't do this just for her own self. Actually, what she's trying to do is lay the foundation for the student's next teachers who work in the classroom every day. She's quoted as saying this, my mentor teacher, when I started teaching, said, this is going to be heavy, but you lay the foundation for every other teacher this child is going to have. You're either going to make this a positive, good foundation, or you're going to make this child hate coming to school. She said, you have to think about that every morning. She's also one of the teachers who taught me the importance of praying for each student. So Mrs. Fitzgerald, she was a PE teacher for six years, and for seven years, she was a kindergarten teacher. And when she retired from South Bosque Elementary in our Midway ISD, she started another ministry, a letter-writing ministry. And so these kids have been getting letters. She's written over 2,000 personalized letters. The idea to write these letters uh, came from a story she read about uh, of a soldier uh, there was a, apparently a young man came from a dysfunctional home, goes into the military, and he dies serving our country. But when they're going through his personal effects, in his wallet, they find a letter, a letter written by an elementary school teacher that went and talked about reinforcing the great thing about this kid. And so, she said in the article, quote, in reading through that, I thought, huh, if that was the one person who made him feel valuable and worthwhile, what an impact one teacher made. How do you know that you're not that one teacher that's going to be that? They're going to keep your one letter. And when they get into that depths of despair, they're going to pull it out. And so she's been writing letters. She's obviously a deeply committed Christian, not ashamed to write of her faith and to encourage these kids, and so she does. And so I'd like to read to you the letter that she wrote to Connor that he received just a few days ago. Connor, dear Connor, wow, your senior year is here. A lot depends on your performance this year. Are you ready to give it your all? You'll be making some very important decisions this year. Will you choose college, community college, trade school, an apprenticeship, or something else? First, sit back and evaluate what your gifts and talents are. Also, get input from a wise someone whom you look up to. You'll be able to enhance your self-evaluation. God has designed you like no one else. Second, think of what you enjoy doing. Your talents mirror what you will get satisfaction and affirmation accomplishing. Third, research the best places to gain additional knowledge and training you need to start your job or career. And fourth, Determine other areas of your life besides academics that you need to grow in. Select ways and methods to develop your skills for life, your emotional life, and your physical life. 
You want to use all your God-given talents and gifts. Don't leave any of them unwrapped. You have my prayers for guidance and for growth this last year at Midway ISD. Have a blessing-filled senior year. I love you always, Mrs. Fitzgerald. Why? Why would she write a letter? Why would she be writing these letters every year, three times a year, to these students who were once in her kindergarten class? Why? Because how you see yourself determines how you live your life. And she sees herself as an influence for good, as a tool in the master's hand to encourage her students long after they left their, her kindergarten class. And this letter that you hold in your hands right now, this letter of James, it's a life-giving letter. It's a letter for life. And in the weeks to come, we're going to just mine its riches and get all that we can so we can experience the fullness of life in Christ through this letter of life. Let's pray. God, what a, an amazing letter you've given us. This book of James, written through the power of your spirit through a man who's been transformed from skeptic to a man who is of significant spiritual leadership. From one who is apathetic and unbelieving to a great apologist and leader of the faith. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to get everything we can. That as we begin this school year, we're doing so with an eye to really grow in our maturity and enjoyment of Jesus. And if there's someone here who has come here today who's never trusted in Christ, would they just simply pray with me now and say, God, I, I turn from myself and sin. I get it today. I understand that Jesus is the Lord Jesus Christ. He paid for my sins. He is alive. I trust in him today. I ask for forgiveness of sins. And I really need the newness of life, a life that only you can provide. So God, would you have your way in our lives individually and as a church? May we bring great glory to you as we mature in the faith through the words you give us. And we pray 